I like that story. I've, I've, uh, I heard it for the first time actually a number of years ago. Maybe you've seen that before, but um, it's a story of transformation, and it's a story of what happens really when somebody encounters Christ. Uh, but not, what's encouraging to me too is they don't just encounter Christ, they encounter his body as well, and that has a significant influence on them too. Um, I wonder if I could get you to do something. I've only been here three weeks, so you'll forgive me if it makes you a little uncomfortable. But uh, I want you to say something with me. So I'm going to say something just repeated after me. To be known is to be loved. And to be loved is to be known. Uh, I want to, uh, you met Nydia, but I want to introduce you to another buddy of mine. Uh, it's a guy I know named uh, James Smith. You'll see his picture on the screen. James, he graduated from Bloomfield High School in Bloomfield, Connecticut, back in 1995, about a year before my wife and I got married. And um, from there, from Bloomfield High School, he went to Mount Vernon Nazarene University, which is in Ohio. And uh, he went there to study youth ministry. But around 2004, he kind of decided he needed to get his Master's of Ministry education. And since then, he's actually worked at Mount Vernon Nazarene University this whole time, kind of working his way through different positions all the way now to the Vice President of University Relations, my buddy James. Uh, most people would not know this about James. I do. Uh, James loves Harry Potter. Uh, he loves to do things like quote lines from The Office all the time. And uh, in 1999, he married Kelly. He would tell you that was the best decision he ever made outside of following Jesus. And uh, yeah, she has a great sense of humor. She's this incredible blogger. She's got a lot of insight. But uh, they're just a really, really great family. James is a really, really great guy. And I, I just need to give you a quick confession about my friend James. Uh, two weeks ago, I googled the most common name in the United States for men. Google said it was James Smith. So I typed James Smith into Facebook. And that popped up, what popped up was this guy because we have 23 mutual friends. I've been racking my brains and I actually do not know a single human being named James Smith. James Smith. So in 10 minutes... On James Smith's Facebook page, I came up with what I shared with you this morning and a whole lot of other stuff that I didn't share with you. Um, and right now you're going, Pastor Rich is kind of creepy. Uh, it's okay, hang on. I get a whole lot weirder, so just, just buckle up. Here's my point. With relative ease, with relative ease, I could probably convince quite a few people that I know Jim, I, I call him Jim because we're so close, uh, that I know Jim really, really well. I know him really, really well, but I don't really know Jim, do I? Right? I know about him. I have enough impersonal knowledge to recognize Jim. I can even speak about Jim in a way that maybe makes you think that I know this guy. Are you following me? I don't really know him. I don't know him. I mean, when you know somebody, when you really know someone, you know their heart. Uh, you know what makes them tick. You know their loves. You know their fears. Uh, you know them at a level that goes beyond facts. In fact, when you truly know someone, their life impacts you. You're different because you know that person. 
They've had that big of an influence on you. Example, my wife, Shelly. I know my wife. I don't know just about her. I know her. And because I know her, she's rocked my world. You rocked my world, babe. So <laughs> my world is different because I know Shelly, not just know about her. So I start with Jim because the focus of this series that we're going into as we head into Easter is this. An encounter with Jesus will always lead you to a point of decision. You are going to have to make a decision about something. An encounter with Jesus always leads to a decision. So let me explain that. The church in North America and real-life community church, every church in North America, really uh, plays around and, and can be tempted to know about Jesus. People in the church can know about Jesus, but not really know Jesus. We make it very easy to know about Jesus and not yet know Jesus to the point where he changes some things in your lives. Knowing about Jesus doesn't change your life. Knowing Jesus personally, though, always does because knowing and encountering Jesus always leads you to a point of decision. Always. And in this series, we're going we're gonna to behold Jesus. We're going to behold Jesus through his encounters with several people in the New Testament, uh, people who I think that we'll see aren't a whole lot different than us. Now, uh, as a kid, I went to CCD. If there's any other former Catholics or Catholics in this room, is anybody, those words familiar to you? So CCD, that stands for Confraternity of Christian Doctrine. That's serious words for a first grader, right? <laughs> But, but that's what CCD stands for. It was essentially almost Bible school on, on a weekly basis on a Wednesday night for us. It was a training to learn facts and information about Jesus, about the church, uh, all those kinds of different things. And as a young Catholic kid, I did First Communion. I did confession. Uh, I went through confirmation. I was baptized as an infant. Uh, I went the whole nine yards, okay? But even then, I didn't know Jesus. I knew a whole lot about him. I thought I knew a lot, I really didn't, but I, I thought I knew a whole lot about him. But I didn't really know Jesus. My life was no different. My life was no different. I, I wonder if you can relate to that. You go through all these motions, but then nothing in life changes. You don't change. And the Apostle Paul, uh, who hated Jesus, and then he encountered Jesus and ended up dying for Jesus. He said this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. He's saying by beholding Jesus, by knowing Jesus, that's how we're transformed. And my hope in this series is that we're going to encounter him and fully know Jesus. But right up front, we need to be aware that an encounter with Jesus always leads to a decision. It always does. And so we're going to start that encounter in John chapter 4. Um, now I'm going to read like 40 verses. So stick with me here. You're only going to see one on the screen, verse 4. Uh, but, and verse 4 is really important. So let me just jump right in. It's John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that that, I'm sorry, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had learned that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, 
but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, if you underline stuff, if you've got your Bible, all that kind of different stuff, this is a really good verse to underline. It's verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. That's it. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is really deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his son and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I give them, they'll never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come out here to draw water. All right, everybody okay? Because 16, verse 16 is where it gets a little weird. Jesus said to her, all right, go call your husband. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with right now is not your husband. What you said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, uh, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jew, but, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples come back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but nobody said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could he be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. We're going to skip over verses 31 to 38. They're important, but they're for another time. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. He stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard it ourselves. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. 
Now, this is, this is an introductory message for this series, uh, but what we see in this passage particularly is going to carry us through this series, and it hinges on that one verse. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why is that a big deal? Well, to the Jews, Samaritans were dogs and half-breeds. I didn't say that. It actually says it in Scripture. That's what they're labeled as. Dogs, half-breeds, and the hate that stemmed from, when that, from the Jews towards the Samaritans really goes back to when the nation of Israel was divided and um, the Samaritans essentially began to intermarry with the enemies of Israel, the Assyrians. And it was, was kind of like a slap in the face for the nation of Israel. Why would you do that? And so this bad blood just began to brew and brew and brew. And plus, they all just argued all the time about how to worship, which seems to happen even in 2021. <laughs> Everybody argues about worship. And they just argued back and forth, back and forth about worship. And when you don't get along with somebody, what is the temptation when you don't want to keep short accounts? You vilify the other person. You make them out to be the bad guys. And so to the Jews, the Samaritans, they were on the other side of the tracks. They, were, they lived on the street that your parents and good, good nice, clean-cut parents said, kids, don't go down that street. That's where the Samaritans lived. That's why, if you were going to travel through that region, there was a really, really well-worn path in the eastern side that the Jews always take so that they could go around the Samaritans on their journeys. It's kind of like if you decided to go up north uh, through Chicago, you'd go around on 294 instead of up through the city on 94. Now, there's a problem with that approach, and Jesus calls it out. It says Jesus had to go some, through, to, to Samaria. He did not have to. The problem with that is God did not send Jesus to some of the world. He sent, it, sent him to the whole world. The whole world. Now, that's another sermon, but as I was writing this, I just couldn't say this. Um, does the love of God ever compel you, me, us, to go or be with people that human divisions tell us to avoid? Does God's love ever compel you to go where you shouldn't? And if not, why? Why? You know, Jesus was a Nazarene. And early on in his ministry, as he's calling disciples to follow him, one of them says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, I think it's good to remember what this great uh, guy, uh, his name is Montague Williams. He's a black author uh, who is also a professor at uh, Point Loma Nazarene University. He helped me out tremendously this last summer when political and racial turmoil were just erupting. Uh, he wrote this this summer. He said, God offers us the way, the truth, and the life through Nazareth. We are the church of the Messiah from the neighborhood that most are taught to avoid, scorn, and consider the wrong side of the tracks. That's our Savior. That is for another sermon. <laughs> uh, Jesus the Nazarene could have avoided Samaria, but he didn't. Why? Why? He went head first into the cultural divisions of the day and literally offered no apology for it. And he did it 
because Jesus wants an encounter with you so that you might know him. Jesus wants an encounter with you. We're talking about encounters with Jesus, but Jesus wants an encounter with you so that you might know him. And this whole encounter with this woman is completely wrong. This whole thing is backwards. You gather water in the morning, not in the heat of the day. She's there around noontime. You gathered water in the morning for your day's chores and everything that was going on. Plus, gathering water was a communal activity. You went out there. You said, hey, can you watch my kids for an hour while I go chase this down? And, hey, did you hear about what Susie did last night? You know, I mean, just, it was just this kind of time where everybody got together and had conversations. There were no tweets or texts. So this was a, this was a social thing. But instead, what we see at noon at this well is one single solitary woman. That's it. Why is she there by herself at the heat of the day? The reason she's there is she's had five husbands and the one she's with now is not her husband. That's why she's there when she's there. That's also why Jesus is there when she's there. Because of who she is and her life. Now, I've heard this passage preached before, some of you have, um, with an eye toward this woman's sinful actions that led her to this station in life. She's out there in shame because of the poor choices of her life. Uh, she's been sleeping around, maybe. I don't know. However we'd want to say it, but she's had five husbands, and now she's with another guy. And so we easily draw conclusions. She moves from one man to another, and we can, we can even spiritualize it. It's the perfect fit for what Jesus said about drinking well water or his eternal water. In other words, you keep turning to empty wells, thirsting for something that only Jesus can give you. Turn to Jesus and, and receive what he has for you. I mean, that'll preach, okay? Um, I kind of struggle with leaving that interpretation right there. Because if you read this in the context of the first century Middle East, um, it was really, really hard to be a woman. Really, really hard. Uh, divorce was literally almost impossible. Almost impossible, regardless of what anybody did to you. You were stuck. Men, however, could like trade women like baseball cards. I mean, it just, it just happened really, really casually. Uh, on top of the fact that women, when they found themselves outside of marriage, particularly after a divorce, uh, it was a very shame-based culture. Okay? It just got worse and worse and worse. Uh, if you had an illness, if you uh, had a disability, even if you couldn't bear children, you were viewed as less than, you were, your value did not exist, essentially. You were discarded. If you were fortunate as a woman in that culture, uh, you, you had another family member or the brother of your husband who would take you in as his wife and provide for you and feed you. But as a woman in that culture, your value was tied to matrimony and production. And, and at the end of the day, if you couldn't fit that bill, you were discarded, you were left to the side. And so here is this woman, is it possible? Is it possible maybe there's more going on than what we see? She had no value. I'm inclined to believe that, and this is just me, that in our quickness to see her shame as something that she earns because of her promiscuity, I think our desire to categorize somebody like that says something more about us than it does about her. Um, what's amazing to this is in that shame, Jesus just walked right into it. 
He didn't expect it to go away before he showed up. He walks right into it. A life spent avoiding the reminders of her shame and lack of value. And what she does not expect is someone meeting her in that shame, whether it was earned or deserved. Now, I don't know about you, but that does a lot for me. A lot. And then he asks her for a drink, which starts this weird conversation about living water and well water and all this kind of different stuff. He talks about a water where she'd never have to thirst again. You'll never have to walk out here and relive the shame of aloneness. Question your value in the heat of the day. You'll never have to do those things if you drink from the water that I provide for you. And you can hear her desperation. Verse 15 says it. Sir, give me that water so that I will not be thirsty or have to be humiliated by coming out here in the middle of the day again. I'm done. I don't want to do it anymore. And what does Jesus say? Go get your husband. Which sounds really mean. <laughs> it's like Jesus goes, boink, and, and you know, sticks his finger right in the wound. Why does he do that? He touches literally the most shame-filled part of her. Why would he do that? Because he wants to know her, wants her to know him and to know Jesus is to acknowledge that he knows you. If you're going to know Jesus, you need to acknowledge that he knows you. She feels dirty. She feels unvalued. Broken. Jesus knows you. He knows you. He knows not just about you, not what you did or what you do. He knows your heart. He knows your pain. He knows your burden. He knows exactly what's going on that nobody else sees. He knows you. Hear me clearly. He also knows your sin, the sin that so easily entangles us. It keeps us in bondage. He knows that. We hide those places, ashamed, believing the lie that we're too damaged for Jesus to do anything. Just like Nitty in that video, I'm too drugged up. Jesus can't do anything about this. Yet here he is, he goes after the very spot that she doesn't want anybody to touch, doesn't want anybody to see, doesn't want to be reminded about. And herein lies, I think, why many times when given the opportunity, people avoid moving past just knowing about Jesus. It's safer to just kind of show up for a good show, isn't it? That's just safer. I hope they sing my song today. I really like that song. I'll just come get my Jesus fix. It's a whole lot safer to live life that way. Because to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be what? Known. And when she realizes that he really knows her, what does she do? She does what most people, maybe some of us do, when those spots get touched. She deflects. I know. Let's point out a church inconsistency. Hey, Jesus, the Jews worship on that mountain. We worship on this one. I mean, what do you say? We can't even get our act together. Nobody, is anybody right? Are you right? You know, man, the church is so hypocritical. Here's a church inconsistency. She deflects, but Jesus loves her too much to let her deflect. To let her deflect. He knows her. He knows her heart, her pain. He knows her sin. And even so, even so, he meets her exactly where she is. And then the disciples wander up. Um, 
it's kind of awkward, and then nobody, everybody's just standing there and nobody says anything, which makes it worse. I'm a void filler. If I'm in a group of people and nobody's talking, I will invent things to talk about. Silence is a killer for me. It's probably why I do what I do. But uh, I'll, I'll just fill in all the dead space. My wife knows what I'm talking about. Just stop talking, Rich. But the disciples, they show up. Jesus is there. They marvel at the fact that he's doing this totally socially unacceptable thing. But then they're, they'll just kind of stand there. So what does she do? She leaves her jar. She runs to the very people she's trying to avoid. Isn't this crazy? She runs to the very people she's trying to avoid. She runs up to them and declares, come and see a man who knows everything about me. You guys think you know about me. This guy knows everything about me. Is it possible that he's the Christ? Something happened. She decided to be known. She decided to be known. Um, some people, when faced with the fact that Jesus knows them, choose to go another way. And you could do that. But I want to challenge us. You and I are that woman at the well. Man, woman, teenager, child, board member, non-board member, whoever you are. We're the woman on the well. Um, she's us. She's me. And whether her or her own or somebody else's sin had separated her from God and others, we're no different than that. Sin has separated us from one another. But more importantly, sin has separated us from God. We fall short. We know we do. Jesus knows us. He knows we do. So what do we do about it? Can I encourage you? Embrace being known by Jesus. Embrace the fact that there's somebody you can't hide from. Embrace the fact that there is somebody who knows you better than anybody else. And still, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's crazy. That's, that's a choice. He chose even so, even knowing who I was, even knowing what I was like, even so, he chose me. He knows me. I need to embrace being known by Jesus. At 17, I did not have the history of this woman, but I did know shame. I was a liar. <laughs> I pretended as hard as I could um, to know Jesus, but ultimately, uh, I only knew about him. I knew enough about Jesus and could play the part and acted really well and lied really well to convince a whole lot of people around me that I knew Jesus, but I just knew about him. I knew enough to appease other people. I knew enough to play the game, to be a part. Uh, the, not the one who knew me, who really knew me and even so loved me. By the grace of God at 17, Jesus helped me to see that, yes, the well of my life was empty. It was empty. I had to decide to embrace being known by the one who knew every thought, every inclination that I had, every fear, every failure, and yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for me. While I was yet a sinner, Jesus chose me. He decided that. He knows you. He chooses you even so. 
Will you decide to embrace being known by Jesus and choose him? Uh, This story at the well is my story. It's your story. It's our story. He's just waiting for us to realize it. That's all there is to it. He's just like with this woman. He's just waiting for her to realize, I know you. I know you. And yet here I am with you. Here I am with you. You have no secrets with Jesus, and that's okay because he still wants you to know him. Even so. The next couple of months, we're going to be confronted full on with decisions. But it does begin with just one decision. What will you do with a Jesus who knows not only everything about you, but does know your heart? He does know your pain the brokenness, and yes, he knows the sin. He knows the sin. Jesus sees you. He really sees you. He knows you. He wants you to know him because to be known is to be loved. And to be loved is to be known. Zach and Marissa are going to come, and what I want to do this morning is I want to invite you to come to know Jesus. Um, Usually we kind of preach Jesus and, and have people accept Christ into their life on Easter, but I have a feeling that ramping up to Easter with a relationship with Jesus is one of the best things you could ever do. And if you're sitting here today and you realize that you have knowledge about Jesus or you've gained maybe even false knowledge about Jesus that the world perpetuates today, and you realize that you don't really know him personally, I want to invite you to make that decision today. Uh, I'm going to pray. If you find yourself realizing, you know, that sin has separated me from God, that he knows that sin, but I also believe that Jesus chose me. He died to take the place that my sin earned. And I want to receive what he did for me and experience this living water that he speaks to this woman at the well about. I want to encourage you this morning to follow me in prayer. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. I'm going to pray and just where you're seated. If you need to pray this prayer, uh, you can just repeat right now, even silently, uh, where you are. Uh, Father, I come before you today. And I know that there's brokenness in my life. And I own the fact that some of that brokenness is because of me. I know that there's sin in my life. And I know that sin has separated me from you. It's damaged the relationships around me. But I also believe that Jesus knows me. And while my sin earns me death, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin. He took the penalty for my sin, He paid my account. And today I accept that gift into my life. I receive forgiveness for my sin. And today, Father, as as best as I know how, I want to live my life drinking from your well. Help me to follow Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Would you sing and then I'll come back up and close.